So the title of this message is, interesting, Beware the Foxes. Beware the Foxes. Um, I pray, and I have prayed uh, for this day specifically, um, that you would hear that what the Holy Spirit has to say directly to you today. I really believe that he has something to say to you individually and then us collectively as a church as well. I don't think it's by accident that you have arrived here today. And so I am honored that you've chosen to be here. And I believe that God wants to do something incredible. I say all of that to say this, that I believe God wants to help you heal from the wounds of your past and help prepare you to live a healthier spiritual life in the future. You say, well, pastor, I don't have wounds. What are you talking about? Just wait till we get there. We're going to talk through some things today that are, um, I believe of an urgent nature, but also it's really good for you to put this knowledge in your head for the moment that you need it in the future or when you want to share it with a friend. Uh, how many of you ever watched nature shows growing up? Okay. I still watch them. I love them. Uh, I can remember, uh, I think it was on PBS, um, after dinner, uh, there was a show called Wild America and a guy named Marty Stauffer. And, um, I think I've watched every one of the episodes and all the reruns that, you know, kept on playing. And he had a show called Wild America where he basically, um, he showed these sweeping views of America, you know, from the prairie lands to the mountains to the ocean. And then you would discover animals. He would tell you what the names of the family is called, you know, what the male is called, what the female is called. And he'd talk to you about their eating habits, sleeping habits, all of those kinds of things. And I just remember being pretty much like entranced as a kid, uh, thinking about all of those things, um, one of the most interesting creatures that he ever covered and that I've ever learned about is actually a fox. You say, Pastor, this seems like a strange day to be in church. I'm telling you this today for a reason, not to give you a lesson in zoology, but to tell you that foxes are actually mentioned in the Bible. And it's fitting because there's kids in the room. It'll be interesting for them because the Bible mentions foxes in different places, a handful of places, and they always seem to be portrayed as these cunning creatures that are sly. And um, we know that style of creature because in folklore and in fables, there's all sorts of stories about foxes. They're tricksters. They're, they're cunning. They're clever. Interestingly, in the Bible, Jesus called a man a fox. That man's name or title, rather, is Herod. So it's it's possible to have the characteristics of a fox, and we're not talking about she's a fox kind of thing, not that terminology, terminology but we're talking about being characteristically like a fox. So today I just want you to have that in your mind as we go into scripture because I want to show you a couple things about foxes that I think will surprise you. And this is not about zoology and their behavior. This is about something that we will call foxes, but it shows up in a whole lot of different ways in our lives. Let me tell you before I show you the first verse we're going to, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can go there. Song of Solomon. Yeah, great. The kids are in the room. Pastor, listen, Song of Solomon. Okay, how many books in the Bible are there? Six, a lot. Someone said a lot. There there are 66 books in the Bible, and I've really made it a goal in my ministerial life uh, to try to dedicate at least one series every year to a book. Now, there are some years that take a little longer because of Leviticus. Y'all who get that joke understand uh, we were in that for quite a while. Um, let me just tell you this. On the list of books that I'll cover, in my 66th year of ministry, it will be the Song of Solomon. Okay, And I hope I'm dead before that happens. Because it is such a wild ride. Okay, So let me give you a little context about the book. It's really technically 
uh, a love story, a, ro- a romance novel, if you will, between Solomon and his female love interest. But go with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, to a single verse that is kid-appropriate. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom or in blossom. The idea here is that there are threats to the growth of their love. Now, physically, in the natural world, there are two humans in the picture in Song of Solomon. Uh, and Solomon and she are having pretty much kind of a conversation back and forth. We'll leave it at that. And there's this moment that happens that says, basically, hey, as we're preparing to mesh our lives together, I have a vineyard that's out here, and there are things that are attempting to threaten its livelihood. There are a couple different ways that foxes could ruin a vineyard, and I'm going to give you just those possibilities. They could be using the vines as cover because they're predatory animals. So they could be hiding behind masses of the vine going up on the trellis and on the framework. They could be stalking prey. Uh, It's kind of like if you want to think of the vineyard, uh, which is where they grow grapes, uh, you can kind of think about it like an animal's grocery store. There's there's a lot of uh, critters out there that want to feed on the seeds and um, want to feed on the fruit and make their home in the branches and all of those things. So they could be stalking prey and in so doing, disrupting the root system of the vine. Because mice have put their homes there. And then foxes are coming to get the mice and they're digging to get to where they are. They're disrupting the vines and the roots specifically. The third option or potential uh, for how they're moving and ruining the vine in the vineyard is by gnawing on the branches in order to get fruit. Now, this might intrigue you uh, so much so that you go and study a little bit about foxes sometime this week. Uh, they're very interesting animals. Uh, one of the interesting things is uh, that they are able to actually climb, unlike their dog cousins, uh, they're able to climb on things. But they're also able to gnaw at those branches in order to make a home for themselves or cover for themselves and get fruit. So there's a couple different possibilities as to what would be happening. I want you to think today with your spiritual mind, not just in the physical Regardless of the possibilities, the truth is that foxes were threatening the vineyard in Song of Solomon chapter 2. Now go with me to John chapter 13. Your first lady, uh, my lovely, beautiful wife, preached a message uh, back in the end of January uh, in this series. And she preached from this passage. I want to remind you of what the words of Jesus are in John chapter 13, verse 4 and verse 5. It says this, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus then said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I want you to be aware of the foxes that can ruin the vineyard. And I want you to have John 13 in your mind because you are 15, sorry, because you are part of the vineyard yourself. Amen? I misread that out of my notes. Thank you for correcting. John 15, verse 4 and 5. So, if the vineyard is the planting of the Lord and he's the vine, we're the branches, then we as branches can be negatively affected by those predators, those foxes that would seek to ruin the vineyard. Now, there's other elements that can ruin a vineyard. 
soil issues, weather-related issues. There's a lot of other things. Listen to me with your heart today. There are a lot of things you cannot control that do happen. But I believe that warning in Song of Solomon is a clarion call for you and I to beware of the foxes that do exist. And then to shore up ourselves against their predatory ways in our lives. And this relates to the church. A majority of us here have experienced some type of hurt in a church at some point before. Somewhere else or even in this very place. You've experienced some sort of hurt on your faith journey. I remember a couple weeks ago, I asked, would you please raise your hand if you've ever experienced some sort of hurt and in a church and almost every hand in the room went up. Somebody somewhere got mad at someone's decision. Somebody somewhere had an issue with how something was dealt with. Somebody else got their feelings hurt. There was a decision made and you weren't included in that decision. I'm here to tell you today, not that they were wrong and you were right or vice versa. I I can't get into that. I could do a whole series on church hurt, but that kind of seems a little bit depressing. What I want to do is I want to, instead of me trying to nail down the exact hurt, I want to give you some practical ways that I believe God wants to help you heal from past hurt and help prevent future hurt in the church. I believe that God heals. We prayed for that this morning. We heard testimonies. Of how God heals. And I believe that God wants to heal not just physical bodies. But he also wants to heal our spiritual person. He wants to heal your emotions. He wants to provide healing for those things that you deal with mentally. He wants to heal the wounds that you suffered at the hands of those you trusted. He wants to heal the wounds that you Incurred even from those you called close friends. In fact, Jesus himself said of his mission here on the earth that his goal, if we look in the New Testament, you hear Jesus, which by the way was a faithful church attender. Hello. Um, and he was in the synagogue in the city of Nazareth. And it says it was his turn to do the reading for the day. And they handed him the scroll of Isaiah to read. And he turned to Isaiah, what we know now as Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And he began to read this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Another word for bind up, think about band-aid, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I sincerely believe that today can be your Independence Day. And that sounds cliche and, and maybe corny, but I'm telling you, there are believers in this very room or who will hear this message who are struggling with hurts from the past and you haven't healed. And as a result, you are disabled and dysfunctional within the body of Christ. Jesus wants to change that. In fact, he came so that he could change that. Amen? So I've got good news for you today. He still heals the brokenhearted. He still mends the wounds. He still is the one that we can turn to for healing. Uh, you know, years ago, back in maybe the 70s and 80s, they came out with a lot of self-help books. And there's self-help gurus. If you struggle with time management, you can get a book on that and improve yourself. I'm telling you here today that I'm not offering you self-help tips. I'm offering you Jesus' help, his tips, because that will change your life. Amen? 
So there are lots of things that can threaten uh, the life and livelihood of a vineyard. Think about the vineyard as the church. Think about that. And think about the striving for unity that scripture talks about, that we are to work together to be unified in the body of Christ. See, unity is the quality of, listen to me, becoming one. It's not two identicals that just happen to be in the same place. It is something here added to something there that becomes this. So that is what unity is. It is you are no longer a multiple, but you have become one. In every wedding I've ever been to, there's some sort of phrasing, and the two shall become one. The church is supposed to be united, not divided. But here's the thing. I think what we end up doing is we get off course because we think everyone needs to be united on my opinion. Which that would be great. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. It really wouldn't. Variety is the spice of life. And that includes in the kingdom of God. There's different people with different backgrounds, with different eyes to see different things that others wouldn't have considered. It's important that we shoulder the burden of this thing called the church together. And sometimes it gets messy. Sometimes it can be devastating. Here's how I'd like to tell you today. You need to remember this for the rest of your Christian life. We need unity in the essentials. That is the beliefs of God's word. You have to be unified on those things. But diversity is always going to be there in preferences. So you like baby poop green as the color. Great. I don't. That's a preference. I know. I knew somebody would laugh about baby poop green. There's no other way to describe it. There's probably an educated word, but I figured, you know, just keep it lively. You have a preference about what should be done and how it should be done. But listen to me, church. You need to be in a church that preaches the unadulterated word of God, plain and simple. That's the truth. And the truth is getting harder to find. I'm not preaching to those people. I'm preaching to you and you're here today, which that's good because you are in a Bible believing and preaching church. We've got to have unity in the essentials. So what's essential? We've talked about these things before. Did Jesus come or did he not? Did he die for my sin or did he not? Is he still in the ground here on earth or is he living forever in heaven by the throne of God making intercession for me resurrected and he promises me new life? So I've got to get to the place where I understand what the essentials are. See, I think sometimes what we end up doing is to use a a larger frame of work. I would say this. Sometimes we try to canonize our preferences. That word canon really it comes from Catholic uh, theology way back when and the church fathers. They called it a canon. It's a collection of scriptures together. When they got together and said what books belong in the Bible, that was called the canon of scripture. And here's what we end up doing in churches. We end up coming in, becoming a member, starting to serve. And then because our preference is very important to us, we elevate it to the place of what God's preference is. It's not the same. You say, Pastor, it's my first time here today. I don't know why you're preaching so angry. I'm helping you. I'm helping you. My name is Dexter and I'm your friend. Okay? Here's the thing. There is not a church split going underway that I'm preaching against. Thank God that we are in a church that is healthy and growing healthier in every sort of way. But it's so good to make sure that even if we're not dealing with an issue, we still get to talk about that issue. Because it'll help you from the past and it'll help you into the future. So there's always going to be diversity in preference. In fact, difference is inevitable, but division is a choice. 
You, uh, you can't tell your math teacher that, Bo. Okay, division is a choice. She's like, no, do the work. It, you have to divide this. Difference is inevitable. Why? Because we're human. But division does not have to be inevitable. That is a choice. The unity of the church is threatened by many things, but a majority of the decisions or the division, sorry, that happen in a church is due to people elevating their preference to the place of God's preference. The apostle Paul addresses this with the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four. He says it like this. Let's read Ephesians four verses one through six. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here is a list. He says, do it with humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Some people struggle with just those three things. Humility, gentleness, with patience, and bearing with one another in love. We all do because we're human. What Paul goes on to say here, he says in verse 3, eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says this, he lists out seven different ones, singular units that are unified. He says there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, That belongs to your call. And verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who's over all and through all and in all. In case you didn't know, he's everything. So Paul is driving home a point. And you may not understand this just at first glance. But the church at Ephesus was dealing with unity issues. They were dealing with the potential for division. Paul is addressing a group who are converted Jews turned Christian. They accept Jesus as Messiah and Gentiles, pagans who were then coming to faith in this new religion. They're mixing and meshing together in this melting pot of a city called Ephesus. And there's some preference that's different for them than it is for the others in the church. And so he's addressing this and saying, regardless of your ethnic, your cultural, your other preferences, your background, you are to understand you are living in a spiritual reality that trumps your physical reality. The spiritual reality is that we're one body, that we're, we've been baptized with one baptism, that we serve one God, that, that we together, it doesn't matter rich, poor, tall, short, anything in between financial divisions, political divisions, any of those things that they could have faced then, we still face them today. And he said this, that's not the important thing. The important thing is to be unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. That rich spiritual identity that they have in common now because they're called Christians, little Christs, Christian followers of Jesus. That is what trumps all the other qualifiers, all the other things in their lives. So I want to move into a place of practicality today of how to help you deal with your wounds from the past and maybe, maybe, just maybe prevent you from experiencing as much hurt in the future. The problem with the church, I'm having a hard time looking at you when I say this. The problem with the church is you. The problem with the church is it's an organization of people. And so people sometimes don't get along. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had an argument in a relationship. Okay? That's a hundred percent of us who've ever been in a relationship, even if it's a father to son, you know, mother to daughter relationship in some human relationship, there's been some sort of disagreement and argument. I want to help you understand this. The reason why we do it is because we're human, but 
That's the natural reality. The spiritual one Paul just gave the Ephesians and I give to you is you ought to look at the spiritual reality first, primarily. So I don't know exactly what hurt that you might be carrying today or what specific fox by any title uh, came in and attacked the branch or wreaked havoc in your life as it regards church. But I believe there's hope. I serve a God who offers hope. And if he can heal, save, deliver, set free, and all of those things, then surely he can help in the middle of potential division or divisiveness and distraction among the believers who are in the church today. So I'm going to give you just one tip regarding your old wounds. And then I'll give you a couple tips for future wounds. And you say, Pastor, wow, that sounds so great. Uh, I can guarantee it'll happen. Because you're a person. And you're going to be with people. I can guarantee you, you can go to any nation in the world. Regardless of their cultural or ethnic traditions, background, all that stuff. If there's a church... They've had problems. That's it. So here's the number one tip regarding your old wounds. And that is this. Focus on forgiveness. Focus on forgiveness. If Jesus is our model for how we're to do life, how we're to live this life, then we've got to understand That even in the last moments of his life here on earth before his crucifixion, he was actually asking the father to forgive those who were harming, abusing, and literally murdering him. Read it for yourself or be reminded. Luke chapter 23 verse 34. He says this, father forgive them. For they know not what they do. Now you say, well, that's Jesus prayer. And he was Jesus, so he could pray like that. I'm having a much harder time praying like that. No, it's a very simple prayer. But seven, eight, nine words. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. If we would help, if we, I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit wants to help you today to heal some of these old wounds. Think about him as a doctor providing you with a cure and the number one on the list of treatments would be this, forgive. Pastor, you don't know the hurt that they made me go through. You don't know the pain they caused my family. No, I don't. I know the situations I've gone through. I know the situations that other stories of people in ministry, what they've gone through. I know some of your stories of what you've gone through, but I don't know it all. I don't know the issue that you faced specifically. And I will tell you this, forgiveness is the hardest thing to give. The hardest thing to give. Chances are people in this room would empty bank accounts and give that before they issued forgiveness to someone who hurt them. I believe Jesus wants us to focus on forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6 verse 14 and 15 say this. For if you forgive, you better listen today. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's interesting because there's a reciprocity of forgiveness. It's a give and take. And Jesus actually lines this out for us in the passage we just read in Matthew 6, where he says, forgive them and God will forgive you. Hold it against them and God will hold stuff against you. I'm not making this up. The reciprocal relationship in forgiveness is that I've got to give it in order to get it. And... We could close with an amen and leave here today. And if you lived according to that principle alone, your life would be different. 
Chances are marriage would be different. Your job, maybe the career that you're in would be different. If you understood the reality, the spiritual reality that you must forgive to be forgiven. It's amazing. It's powerful. If you really, really understand it. So Jesus tells them, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. Verse 15, if you do not forgive them, neither will your father forgive you. There's two dynamics at work regarding uh, this idea of forgiveness. The first is this, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The first dynamic is you. You say, well, what do you mean, pastor? You might, regarding old wounds, you might need to ask God to forgive you of your part that was played. This is not me blaming victims at all. This is not me not being compassionate. I am trying to give you the holistic approach from God's word that I, I myself, even if I was victimized in a place of ministry in other places, I need to stop and I need to start the examination with me. What's my response been? What's my attitude been? God, forgive me of the part, any part that I played. Because again, you are not perfect. Yes, they hurt you. No, you didn't deserve it. But you are not perfect. None of us are sinless. There's only one. And he's the one that told us we ought to forgive. The second dynamic, after you start with you, ends with them. Asking God to forgive them for what they've done. I will never forget, and I've shared this story before, so I won't share the whole story now. But I will never forget having the Holy Spirit lead me, teach me and help me this principle specifically. Because if the verse said, pray for those people, I was praying I was, I was praying they'd get a flat tire. I was praying that something bad would happen. God, get their attention, whatever it takes. Hope it's the, hope it's the really bad list. No, that's, but when the Holy Spirit warned me, let me say it to you like this, cause we are in the South. When I felt like I was corrected, spanked by God, I started to realize that I needed to actually say, God, forgive them. For the sin that they committed against me. Once I deal with me, then I can pray for them. But I'm not praying curses and uh, hope their house falls down and all that stuff. I'm not praying that way for those people. What I'm doing is I'm allowing God's work of forgiveness to keep stirring in my heart. So much so that I say, God, forgive them for what they did. Jesus actually did this. I want to drill that in your brain today. Did this in the moments of his life on earth as it was ending and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That simple phrase for they know not what they do is really helpful in prayer. They don't, sometimes they could be evil, wicked, really terrible and mean every bit of it. But sometimes they're just stupid. I'm talking about them, not you. Don't be offended that I called somebody stupid, okay? (laughs) Listen, I'm talking about them, their actions, being ignorant, not understanding the hurt that they're causing, not understanding the betrayal that they've laid at your doorstep. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's better to take that approach than God sick them, (laughs) get them. So let me share with you a myth and then I'm gonna share with you Two or three practical tips on future wounds. A myth is this. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it. (laughs) Time heals all wounds. Some say distance heals all wounds. It's an absolute lie. No, it's a lie. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's a lie. Time and distance don't heal all wounds. The only one who can heal a wound in your soul is the one who created your soul. The master of the universe, the creator of all things. He is the only one who can heal a wounded heart or spirit. So don't believe the lie. 
that time and distance heals all wounds. I've already expressed to our church in the last couple of weeks through this series about, yeah, it's great. I moved a thousand plus miles away from my last place of ministry. So made it a whole lot easier to heal pretty quick. But here's the deal. Time or distance don't heal the wound. They help, but they don't heal the wound. Only Jesus can. So start the process today. If it's going to be a day of independence for you, when you say, you know, this is crazy, Pastor. You're talking about this, and I'm a believer. I've been serving the Lord for 30 years. And da, da, da. You know, we have that kind of approach sometimes. But if we just take a moment to look in the mirror with our soul exposed, chances are we need some healing for those old wounds. And Jesus is offering it today. Let me give you a few tips regarding future wounds, which I guarantee will happen. Three tips. The first one is this. When division or strife is involved in the life of the church, when those things happen, you've got to be committed to clear-headedness, to clear thinking. Before we um, excuse away our behavior in any sort of conflict, we've got to have a clear head. There are times in Amy and I's relationship in our marriage that we have actually had to say, you know what, let's table this for right now and come back to it later. Because things are getting messy. They're getting ugly. It doesn't sound like we love each other. The way you talk to me, the way I talk to her, those sorts of things. And so we have the ability to stop the process and say, you know what, give me some time. Let me take a walk. 10 out of 10 times, when that kind of situation happens, things go a lot better when you reconnect. Because you can think about how crazy you were in the beginning or how angry or whatever, and the, the pressure has greatly decreased. What I'm getting at is this. When it involves the church and relationships in the church, people tend to get very emotional. We get attached to the things that we like. I mean, who wouldn't, <laughs> Right? So then emotions soar, and then all of a sudden, it's not just that they move furniture into some room that, you know, you used to teach in or whatever the case may be, but it's that it, it, it was a personal affront. It really hurt. And so sometimes I think about it like this. I think about conflict in the church or strife that happens in the church and tension. I think about it like a storm. You know, there's categories of storms. You know, there's whole systems and scales. Earthquakes have the Richter scale. We've got a tornado scale. We've got flood stages. We've got all these things. And I think, we think that everything is the absolute worst. Because it's happening to me. But if I just take a second to back away and think it through and have some clear thoughts, I'll be less emotional. And you know what I'll end up doing is recognizing the fruit of the Spirit. And my need for it. (laughs) We as believers are supposed to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 lists out the fruit of the Spirit. Many of us could sing the, the song. When I think about that in regards to the future wound that you will endure in this church or some church elsewhere. I want you to understand that that is a personal inventory. That's a good place to start. Have you ever been to Walmart when they're doing inventory? They've got the big sheets of paper with like the logs like taped on every shelf everywhere. It's because people are in there overnight counting how much product they have, how much they've lost, all of those things. They're taking inventory of what's there. When you read Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, you ought to do that. Take inventory. Count what it is that you have. And if you're lacking something, ask God for it. And I would say this, if you've been told by someone that you're lacking one of those things on the list, seek God for it. Don't get mad at them. Don't kill the messenger. It's for me too. Don't kill the messenger today. Be clear-headed. I think the church um, would look more and more like Jesus if she, I use the feminine gendered language, She, if the church, would be 
less emotionally involved in some things and more clear thinking. So that'll help you as you go into a future wound or a future war. Number two, tip number two regarding future wounds. When division and strife happen, when conflict occurs, you need to be committed to truth speaking. In fact, I'll tell you this. Literally every, I hope you listen to me when I say this, every successful remedy for issues that ail the human heart, things like addiction uh, services, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, meeting groups, support groups, celebrate recovery, every single one of those that involve recovering from something that involves your spiritual nature, all involve owning up to the truth. The truth of who you are and what you've done or how it's affected you. They want you to be able to speak the truth. And here's what I think happens in church conflict. I think what ends up happening is people start shading the truth a little bit. And then it turns into something like a game of telephone. And then the truth gets lost in the mix. And God hates a few things that are listed in scripture. You can look up the list. It's in Proverbs chapter 6. I read it just two weeks ago in preparation of this message. And I was reminded of this uh, this past week in a conversation with a friend. That there are some things that God hates. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, God is love. That's what we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah, but he hates some things. And among them is a lying tongue. So seek the truth at every turn. Live in the truth. Recall the truth. Uh, If I, if I'm tending to get in an emotional state, uh, or get overwhelmed, I can recall the promises of God because they are true. And I can say, I am not, but I am this because God says in His Word, I am. I am healed. I am this. I am that. I look to God's Word because His truth is, listen to me, it is not subjective. It's not circumstantial based on what clouds are in my life or what storm is brewing in the church. It is not subjective. His truth is objective. That means it stands the test of time. It will, it has, and it will continue to. The word of God will not fail. And so if I'm clear thinking, I better be truth speaking in the midst of any division or divisiveness. Stick to just the facts. Number three, when division and strife happen in the church in the future, be committed to biblical biblical living. What do I mean? I mean this, and I'll just hint at a few of them. We already talked about the fruit of the Spirit. But let me say to you like this. Uh, the telephone lines get really jammed up during church conflicts. Because I just have to tell you, I saw her car outside of the... Well, we just really ought to pray for Bobby because Bobby was over at the... mm. I think what ends up happening is we start gossiping and we start telling our version of events to everybody who will listen instead of understanding that Proverbs 16.28 says, A whisperer separates the closest of friends. So shut up. Kids, I mean, parents, you're going to have some conversations with your children today. We don't say shut up in our house. Why did pastor say that? Listen, because we ought to be quiet and not gossip. It's not your business. If it's not your business, it shouldn't be your mouth. I could stay there for a minute, but I guess I'll move on. Here's here's what happens. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about the unrighteous. And he's talking about things that happen that uh, signify or help you understand what they look like, what the unrighteous looks like. And he says this about the unrighteous. One of their distinguishing features is that they gossip. So don't be that guy. It's not just ladies that deal with this. 
It's getting quiet in here. Come on, let me hear the ladies say, yeah, that's right. Amen, pastor. It's not just the ladies. We're commanded by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Here's another. I'll give you three examples about biblical living. First one was gossip. Shut up. That's the answer. Okay. The second thing would be this, talking about loving our enemies and praying for those who use us or persecute us. I already told you that there, my prayers change from God get them to God forgive them. When that happens, that's biblical living. That's, that's us looking to the word of God and understanding that we are told to love our enemies. This is not me telling you as a victim of church hurt to stay put and keep on being wounded. I would never offer that advice. I would never offer that advice in a human relationship. I would absolutely say, get to safety, get out of that situation. The same thing would be true within the church. But here's what I'm telling you. Jesus didn't say that we didn't have to love them. He says we've got to love our enemies. And he takes it even further. And the King James Version, I love this phrasing. He says, pray for them who despitefully use you. You feel like you've been betrayed and hurt And you feel like maybe Jesus doesn't really get that. Yes, he does. One of his closest friends left him to die, sent him to die. Judas, who betrayed him. So we find some life-giving, helpful instructions for resolving conflicts among Christians that's given from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to go there. Matthew chapter 18. So pray for those who persecute you. So don't gossip. Pray for those who are despitefully using you. And now we talk about a useful way to resolve conflict among Christians. It is elementary. And this is not meant to demean your intelligence. But you got to pay attention when you read God's word. I won't go back into last week or the Super Bowl commercial, but listen to what verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18 says. If your brother sins against you, this isn't talking about some unsaved coworker. This is talking about in the body of Christ. If your brother, if the person who said they loved you does something against you, sins against you, this is how you're supposed to handle it. Now listen, this is what we're supposed to do if we're committed to biblical living. Go and tell him his fault. Hey, hey, you messed up. This is, this is how I feel. This is what happened. You messed up. Tell him your, their fault between you and him alone. That means you don't burn up the phones. You don't tell everyone the business. That means you say, and let's just use Tyler as an example. If Tyler did something that I would consider a sin against me, and this is not him just saying he likes the color green and I said I like the color black. We're talking about bigger things than just something small. We're talking about a category storm, like a big deal. If I feel that he's sinned against me, I could sit here and mope and get sick with bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment. I can start treating him differently or... I could do what Jesus said. And I could say, hey, Tyler, something happened recently. I don't know if you realize that this is what you did, but it really hurt. And you and I needed to talk about this. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I think the church of Jesus Christ around the world, not just here in America, would look much different if we actually practiced what he preached. <laughs> What Jesus preached. So if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. This is awesome. Tyler, if he's not, I gotta be careful. There's kids here. If he's not ignorant of the details, he will then say to me, you know what, pastor, you're right. I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean that. Will you forgive me? If that happens, we all of a sudden are brothers again. 
Everything's hunky-dory. And you know what? There's no collateral damage in the body of Christ because he and I fixed it without you and Susie and Betty and Johnny and Bobby hearing about it. I believe the Holy Spirit has given us a strategy here through Jesus while he was on the earth to help heal and prevent future hurt. Verse 16, Jesus says this, but if he does not listen, then you get to slap him upside the head. No, I'm kidding. If he does not listen, you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So let's role play that in a different way. Tyler says, no, I didn't. And I say, Tyler, no, you really did. If you're not willing to to change as a result of that or apologize and we can't really heal, um, okay. And you walk away. And then I, I talk to Sam and I, I talk to Gary and I, I say, hey, Sam and Gary, um, really need y'all to show up for me. Um, y'all were there. Y'all saw this issue, this incident happen. I've approached Tyler. He's being a little bit of a knucklehead. He, he won't, he's resistant and says, you know, it's not, not his fault. And so I say, Sam, Gary, why don't you come with me? Let's go get coffee with Tyler. If Tyler's a real man, he'll say yes to coffee, even if he knows he's about to get a spanking. The body of Christ is filled with too many babies. And it needs to be filled with warriors. Amen? I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about that bad church you left. Okay? Verse number 17 is this. If he refuses to listen to them... Then you come and blast him before the church. Jesus said it. I didn't. Then you tell it to the church. Hey, uh, at the end of service today, we're going to talk about Tyler. Um, I'm just going to let you know. He likes the color green. I like the color black. He called me an idiot. I told him he shouldn't have done that. He didn't apologize. I had Gary and Sam come join me. They came. They witnessed the whole thing. They He still refused. And now we're excommunicating him from the church. Because I like black and he likes green. No. You, you say, Pastor, well, wh- what is this? It's called church discipline. It doesn't happen very often. But Paul dealt with this very publicly in some of his letters when he was addressing some very some things that I won't mention on family sunday that were happening in some of these places in some of these people who thought themselves and called themselves christian but they were behaving worse than heathens and he addressed it and said kick that man out of the church you've addressed it i've addressed it it hasn't been fixed get him out why Because he will sow bitterness, discord, division. Every little thing will continue to upset that whole cycle of trying to attempt to grow. That These are foxes. Tyler wouldn't be the fox, but allowing it to build into a situation that is untenable, that means I've let something come in and attack the vineyard. So Jesus' words, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like the sinner he is. Like a Gentile and a tax collector. And you got to know, those people, those two references, Gentile and tax collector, would have been, like, that would have been, everybody back in those days would have thumbed their nose up at them. And the same thing is true of the IRS today. I mean, Treat them like that, okay? This past week, I got a sinus infection. Uh, I got sick. It's funny because I know some people who were sick, and I probably shouldn't have been with them, but I got sick. And it's been a sinus infection. Um, when I talked to my doctor and gave him my symptoms, I said, listen, I'm dealing with this. I got to get over it quick. I'm not having all the other cold, flu, COVID, anything else symptoms. I just, there's an elephant that won't get off my face <laughs> and I've got to get, I got to get this fixed. What would I do if that doctor's first line of treatment was to amputate my nose and do a radical sinus surgery on me. 
I would tell you this. I'll be finding a new doctor and I would be reporting him to a medical board of whatever. Because there's no way a doctor would look at that small symptom and recommend some crazy extreme treatment. Say, Pastor, how does that apply to what we've been talking about foxes and sinuses now? Because some in the body of Christ have self-amputated themselves from the body of Christ. And it has been radically invasive treatment. And they've left because their feelings got hurt. Or because they came to a place that they couldn't really find unity. I don't think it should be that way. I don't think God's church is supposed to look like that. In fact, I love my doctor because he immediately prescribed me the proper course of treatment and said, okay, here's a super strong antibiotic. Take some of this, take some of that. You'll be good in no time. I'm much better today. I'm thankful I didn't have to do a radical surgery. But I I think sometimes we make that mistake because we have miscategorized the level of severity of the storm that we are in inside of the church and elevated it to something it's not. And so we've decided that we've got to leave. And so I say that not because, again, we're experiencing any sort of thing like this, but to help you understand what it means to be the church. It means working through it. If you love the person, you'll work through it. And you try everything you can And there is separation. Here's what I think we end up doing. This is not, don't you get offended today. (laughs) You come to me after and tell me, Pastor, you sinned against me today. Don't do that. Listen, this is not me throwing shade at anyone who's experienced divorce. But I'm talking to you today holistically so that you understand this in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not the American marriage. You may have done everything. We're not talking about your marriage relationship. You may have done everything you could to salvage that. And I'm proud of you for doing so. But I think, we think, I fell out of love. So I'm just going to trade her in and go get a new one. That sort of mentality that's pervasive in our culture today has invaded the church. Instead of the church standing up and saying, this is how you love. And we've really got to be doing that. Showing what it means to work through all of the hard stuff. So don't amputate yourself from the body of Christ. When your feelings are hurt, when someone was mean to you, you grow up, you work through it. When you work through it, you become stronger. If you tuck your tail and run, I had this image in my head this week as I was studying through this message If I were to do that, if I were to drop everything because I got my feelings hurt and left, guess what? I wouldn't be anywhere for very long. And who wins? Who wins but the enemy of the kingdom of God if all I'm going to do is hold my hurt up and say, you know what? I'm running away with this and then I'm going somewhere else. And I am literally, I had this image in my head of a runner who then is transitioning into a wheelchair, into a, a device that demonstrates his disability. That's not the way that we should be. I want to tell you some biblical reasons for leaving a church. So you hold this mic while I... I'm so, holding it to you. Yeah, holding it to me. So some biblical reasons to leave the church, okay, are not because you get your feelings hurt. They're up on your screen. This is literally the only things that qualify for you to leave a church. The first one is this, false doctrine. If you hear me talking about you need to worship angels and Jesus isn't king and stuff like that, you better try to get me out of here. And if you can't get me out of here, you better get yourself out of here. Amen? Hello? You better shout. Amen. Second is relocation. I can't be part of the church in Kansas if I now live in Clinton, Mississippi. That's part of relocation. You leave a church. Okay. You moved addresses. I get it. It's in the Bible too. And then false teachers. You tell me something... That is not just false doctrine, but I have something in my life 
as a teacher that is causing it to be false and not come across as what God's word, like not living a life that God's word says I should live. You don't need to be there. It's very clear. Get out of that situation, out of that place. So here's what ends up happening. And you might have been wondering why we had all this baggage here on stage today. But I thought about this because I had this image, which this is a little bit of a crazy image to show you. But each one of these bags represents a burden I now carry based on the hurt of my last church. So, if I leave from the place that I'm in and I haven't worked through my hurt, what ends up happening is I just start carrying all these bags everywhere with me. So, I walk around with these bags and I show up to my next place And I say, hey, I'd love to serve in the nursery. Can I help? Anybody want to give me their baby, their child right now to hold them while I hold all this stuff? Anybody? Anybody? Any takers? I can't really accomplish a whole lot in the life of the church. Listen to me. I can't accomplish anything that serves the purpose of where God put me now. If all I have is my bags from then. So it's it's disabling to me. I'm dysfunctional. I can't hold a baby. You wouldn't trust your grandchild with me right now to be able to hold them safely because I've got all this stuff. What ends up happening is there's got to be a moment of freedom where I release that stuff and I get freed up to be able to do what God has called me to do here and now. And leave this stuff where it belongs, which is at the foot of the cross. So I want to encourage you to work through conflict and don't just disappear. Because if you do, you actually become not invisible, but very visible. Because you have all this stuff with you in the next place that you go. In John Bunyan's religious allegory, written back in the late 1600s, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It's an amazing, amazing tale. The main character, Christian, the the guy's name is Christian, he's on a pilgrimage. And he's traveling under the weight of a burden. It's really heavy. And I'm going to read to you what happens when at last his eyes finally look up to see the cross of Christ. John writes in this allegory, he says this, now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was going to go on was fenced on either side, on both sides with a wall and the wall had a name and it was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending and upon that place stood a cross and a little below it in the bottom there was a sepulcher or a tomb at the base of the cross. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and continued to do so until it fell into the mouth of the tomb. And I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lighthearted and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow And life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder for it was surprising to him. That the sight of the cross was enough to ease his burden. He looked therefore and looked again even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping behold three shining ones. This is the father, the spirit and the son come and greet him. Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a brand new change of clothes. And the third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal on it, which he told him to take with him that he should give it in at the celestial gate when he arrived. 
And so they left and went on their way. Christian, leaping for joy, began to sing. So he found himself under the burden, and in the allegory, it's a burden of sin. Today's burdens that we've talked about are the things that have bothered us and hurt us that have happened in the church. And we we want to leave these things where they really belong, which is at the foot of the cross. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says this. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We not only serve a healing God, but I serve a baggage-handling God. I know that sounds casual, and I wouldn't write a book called that, but I'm telling you this. God can handle whatever baggage you have. Would you stand with me today? He's the one who can burden, who can bear your burden. And he says, leave it with me. Come to me, you who are weary and in need of rest, and I'll give it to you. This is a moment for us to really commit ourselves to the Lord. And I have a feeling that the Holy Spirit has told me there are those here in our body who are dealing with old wounds. And you need today to be a day of freedom and forgiveness. So if that's you, I want you to step out today and receive prayer. You can come up here to the altar area to the front, and we'd love to pray with you. Um, but if you've got any other prayer need in your life, if you need healing, if you need uh, some some decision, uh, wisdom for a decision you're making, anything like that, we want to pray for you today. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to have you be healed from your hurt. Today is not just a magic moment. It's the start of a process towards healing and health. And so, Lord, it's by your Holy Spirit divinely directing this message that you've had me speak these passages and give these points to us. I pray today that, Lord, you would heal wounded hearts. I pray today, Lord, that you would set free that you would help us to forgive those who have despitefully used us, harmed us, caused trauma, betrayed us, lied about us, mistreated us. God, today is the day that we stop focusing on that and we start focusing on what you want to do in our lives. Lord, put us on the path of freedom moving forward. Help us heal from our hurts. And Lord, prepare us to be strong warriors for future battles. So now we know what exactly you're asking of us. I thank you for Celebrate Church. God, my heart is overwhelmed at how awesome you you are and you keep on showing that you are. Lord, bless each and every one of us who respond to prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.